Think of the Muslim university student who goes to college, who professes faith in Christ and is no longer welcome in their home. Think of the single person who's lonely, who knows they could find some satisfaction for the temptations that they have within them, and yet they refuse that temptation because they know Christ, yet they're lonely. What do you do when your obedience to God leads not to an easier life, but to a harder one? What do you do when your obedience to God leads not to safety, but to suffering? Not to prosperity, but to persecution? Today we come to a question that that should affect everybody in the room, and that is how do we make sense of the reality that sometimes our obedience to Jesus makes our lives harder than they would be otherwise? I would suggest two things that we can hold on to when this is our lived experience. We can hold on to God's providence, and we can hold on to God's promises, God's providence and God's promises. Today we we jump into the book of Exodus. So what we'll be doing in the off weeks from Corinthians until we finish that book. And Exodus is a book that right from the start in the two chapters that we plan to cover this morning draws us into this very question. So you'll notice that Exodus is not the first book of your Bible. We covered the first book last year, actually a study through the book of, of Genesis. So as we open to Exodus, we recognize that we're we're not actually jumping into a new story. We're actually just jumping into a a new chapter of a story that's already going on. That is in the 50 chapters of the book of Genesis before the book of Exodus. And what is that story about? How could we sum up what's been covered in the Bible so far up to the book of Exodus? What we know from Genesis is that there is a God and he is the best thing that exists. And this God has a desire to bless people with a relationship with himself. But sin is a reality in which all people live now. Sin is rebellion against the God who made us. Every person has sin, and thus none of us actually want anything to do with the God who made us. So the result is that we're scattered all over the place, away from the presence of God. But what you find in the book of Genesis is that God is more committed to his promise of blessing than we are lost in our sin. So what God does is he chooses a guy from among the peoples exiled away from him, and he names this guy Abraham. Abraham's a name that means the father of a multitude, the father of many people. And God binds himself to this man named Abraham. Because God's plan, it's revealed to us in Genesis, is that Abraham will become the father of a great nation, and it's through that great nation that all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the beginning of God's people, Israel. And it's revealed that it's through Israel that the Savior, the deliverer of people, will come. All right, so the point is, in the Old Testament, there's a constant highlighter on God's work through his people, Israel, tracing just how it is God will preserve his people and thus preserve the Savior, the deliverer. He he will bring a Messiah. He will come through the people Israel. So God's preserving this people. And at the end of the book of of Genesis, 
What you see is that God's people, this promised people, they are very small in number. And they're facing the possibility of extinction through famine. You remember that in the end of the book of Genesis? <laughs> but again, God has a plan. And his plan is a bit of a strange one in the book of Genesis. That is, he's going to send his people, his chosen people, into exile into a foreign land called Egypt, and it's in Egypt that he's going to preserve them, and he's going to grow them. God is going to preserve his promise of worldwide blessing, this promise of a Savior in a strange, faraway land called Egypt under a strange, faraway leader called Pharaoh. And that brings us to the book of Exodus. You saw this at the end of the book of Genesis. God made this very promise. He says this, God spoke to Israel in visions, This is Genesis 46, and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. If you remember, this is what the story of Joseph Joseph made possible, and as we jump into Exodus chapter 1, the opening message of chapter 1 is really simple. Everybody made it, just like God said they would. Everybody made it to Egypt. All 12 sons of Jacob of Israel are in Egypt. Look there at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Nephtali, Gad and Asher, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. All right, so what's what's going on? What's the point? The point is, here in the beginning of of Exodus, is that God did it. He said he would bring his people Israel into Egypt, and he's done it. That's done. And now the question becomes, will he fulfill the next part of his promise? That is, will, will Israel, against all odds, will they become a great nation within this faraway land called Egypt. And listen to what happens next. God's people there in Egypt. Verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. So it introduces some tension, doesn't it? What's going to happen to God's people? Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Maybe you notice the clear echoes of creation as the author emphasizes Israel's growth at the beginning of Exodus. At the beginning of Genesis, you have this multiplication and growth. At the beginning of Exodus, you have it re-envisioned again. God's people are being fruitful. They're multiplying. Look at all the words used to emphasize that growth. Increased greatly, grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. The picture is of a new beginning for God's people. In other words, God is actually making good on his promise. He is creating for himself a great people. And with this people, think about what he's doing. He's keeping alive the hope of salvation for all people. It's perfect, isn't it? It's going exactly according to plan. But look there in verse 8, where we come to a bit of a transition. And with this transition, we have one of the author of the the Bible, author of the Pentateuch's favorite tools, and that is tension. Tension. Because in verse 8, 
God's chosen, his prosperous people, they become God's suffering people. Now, verse 8 says, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I remember the, the previous king, Pharaoh. It's just an office, Pharaoh, king. He knew he loved Joseph. So Israel was greatly favored within Egypt for a time, even among the nations. But verse 7 made, made sure that along with the rest of that generation, that king died. And as happens, a new king, a new pharaoh took his place. And with that came a new season for God's people. This new king, says, did not know Joseph. And he did not love God's people. The growth of God's people did not please him. It scared him. He wasn't blessed by their presence. He was threatened by their presence. Look there in verse 9. And he, that is the king, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, let us let, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. All right, so Exodus is continuing the story of God's people. But here their story continues, not with uninterrupted blessing, which we might have thought, but with seemingly unmitigated suffering. So Pharaoh, this king, he's fearful that if it comes to war, Egypt's going to be outnumbered from the very people that live within them, among them. So he puts Israel square under his thumb. So look at the descriptions of how they're treated. He sets rulers over them who, through their harsh treatment, they afflict the Israelites with heavy burdens. They're made to build cities for the Egyptians. Verse 12 says that they are oppressed. Verse 13 says that God's people are enslaved. So think about this. The lives of the people who belong to the one true God, they're now lives of ruthless suffering, of bitterly difficult captivity. They're, to belong to the one true God in this place and time right here is not to be clearly blessed, but to be clearly oppressed. Verse 14 reiterates what we've already understand, that the Israelites in all their work were ruthlessly made to work as slaves. But notice, it actually gets worse. Not only are their lives being burdened, their lives are being targeted. We see this in the fact that on top of oppression, Pharaoh keep, heaps this command that all the Israelite baby boys are to be killed at their birth. So first, oppression, now infanticide. Look there at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, of whom, uh, was named, uh, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Down in verse 22, this command is expanded to include all the people, all of his people. Look down there in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Just enter into for a second the horror on the ground, right? So maybe you're, you're an Israelite man or woman and you're expecting a child. The baby bump is showing. There's no hiding it. And the call goes out from the king. If anyone witnesses the birth of a baby boy to an Israelite, you take the child and you throw them in the Nile River to die. This is the reality of God's people, God's chosen people here in Exodus 1. It's awful. Now think about this. How did God's people get there? Was it through their disobedience? Was it through some sin? Was it through their rebellion? No. The only way to explain how the Israelites got to this point, into this precarious situation, is what? It's God. God put them there. That's, that was the entire point of the end of the book of Genesis, wasn't it? God himself made provision for his people to be in Egypt so that they wouldn't starve in the famine. So here they are. Yeah, they're alive. But now they have a different threat over their lives. And here's the really important part concerning us. If their lives are threatened, then what else is threatened? The very blessing of God to the nations. Remember that? The Messiah who's promised to come through this people. In Exodus 1, everything is under threat. God's people, God's promises, God's plan. This is where God's people are. So the question is, the question should be, at least to us as readers now, the question should be, where is God? Well, you should notice as we read through these first chapters of Exodus, the only thing more obvious than Pharaoh's blatant attempts to extinguish God's people is his utter inability to do it. You notice that? The more Pharaoh clamps down, the more God's people grow. You see this all throughout the narrative. There's something, there's someone who's more powerful and more involved, who's more in control, even than the mighty Pharaoh. And that someone is God, and that something is God's providence. And if you have eyes to see, I want us to look closely, you'll notice these, these providential ironies all over this narrative. The way God turns the, the greatest efforts against his people to his greatest vehicle for blessing those same people. So here we have Pharaoh. And you notice in every story, in every, even in modern stories, there's one character who's kind of representative of evil and opposition, right? So think of uh, Voldemort. I said his name. Think of Voldemort, uh, Darth Vader, Vader, Ivan Drago, the Joker, Harry and Marv, Home Alone. Why is that character there in every story? Ultimately, it's to show the superiority of the good guy, isn't it? Without opposition, you can't see providence. You can't see might. There's a similar thing working here in Exodus. In this book, Pharaoh is representative. He's the picture of opposition to God. He is the threat to God's plan, God's people, God's promises. And right from the start, God proves his sovereignty over this opposition by turning his oppression into their blessing. And I think this, what, I think this leads to what I see as the main point happening here in these first couple chapters. And that is, even in their suffering... 
God is always working for his people according to his promises. Even in their suffering, God is always working for his people according to his promises. I want to note just a few of these providential ironies we see here in uh, Exodus chapter 1 and 2. First, don't overlook the way that Pharaoh's oppression actually leads to Israel's multiplication. You see that? Look back in verse 12. The author makes it clear. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Do you see how backwards that last phrase is? The people were in dread of the people of Israel. Think of this. Pharaoh is almost overwhelmingly powerful when it comes to earthly strength in this context. He is able to inflict so much pain, almost unspeakable pain and oppression on God's people. But notice, look what we're seeing here. What we're seeing is that having earthly power to harm That is not the same thing as being in control. Having earthly power to harm, it is not the same thing as being in control. Make no mistake, Pharaoh has position and he has power, but he is not God. Pharaoh and every other worldly leader for that matter, in history and now, is in God's hands. And over and over and over again, what you see, looking back at it, with the author's eyes, with God's eyes, is that the Lord is bending this tyrannical oppression and his attentions and his actions to serve his own purposes. Listen, this should encourage us today in a world where we do not know, we have very little control about what's going on. The more we know, the more we feel less and less in control, maybe the more hopeless we feel. I want to encourage you. Listen, if you're a Christian, you should be encouraged today. You serve a God who is, who is actually God. You serve a God who is really God. That is, he's almighty. He really is almighty. He really is in control. He really is unafraid. He really is purposeful. He really is good. Listen, as we go through these narratives, pray for eyes to see God as he really is. Christian, your God is actually God. He is not threatened, not in this story and not now. The very thing that Pharaoh feared the most, that is the multiplication of God's people, is exactly what his own actions led to. Because God loves showing himself to be God. There's a second irony here, and that is, Pharaoh fears the boys and the men, but notice it's God-fearing women who thwart the plans of Pharaoh. Notice it's all throughout chapters 1 and 2. Look back to the verses we skipped in chapter 1. So Pharaoh ordered those who would help him, uh, who would (coughs) help with the Israelite births, to kill all the baby boys. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. (laughs) So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. 
Note, everything hinges on the preservation of God's people to preserve the blessing for all nations. And in this story, the, the Lord is using over and over again faithful women to do just this. Think of these brave midwives. We don't know much about them, but note what we do know about these women. Their names. Did you catch that? We go through all these chapters of Exodus never knowing the exact identity of all these oppressive, arrogant, seemingly almighty kings. Who do we know? Shifra and Pua. We know the names of faithful women who are commended here in the Bible because they chose to fear God, not the one who's, who's adamant to play God. And they're commended for it, not just by us, but by God himself. God, it says, dwelt well with them. We don't have any commentary on what goes down here in these verses, how they let them live and what they're saying and are they being deceptive, all those things. I think if we turn this into an ethics lesson, we kind of miss the point that's being clearly put out for us, which is these are women who are models for us in the fear of the Lord. And they're commended by God because of their actions. God gave them families. The preservation of God's people and the promised blessing, it's made possible because of the courageous, faithful service of these God-fearing women. They were commanded to kill children, and they cleverly refused, and God delighted in that. The midwives aren't the only women in the passage. Notice also you have Moses' own mother and sister. All right, so, you know, as we, as we read through this book, as we're going to make our way through this book of Exodus and follow its main character, Moses, one thing we tend to take for granted is the fact that Moses is, in fact, alive when he was supposed to be, at least all earthly plans, supposed to be dead. And that's what brings us to chapter 2. So chapter 2 kind of narrows our gaze now from the whole of Israel to one family and one very important boy in the story, Moses. And just for now, notice the way that he comes to be preserved. Look there, chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with pitumen and, uh, bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Think about this, just like Jesus Moses is born under an order of infanticide. And just like Jesus, Moses is guarded and preserved by a God-fearing mother. She hides her son in a basket. She places the basket in the Nile, and she hopes for rescue. And notice with that same courage, Moses' sister, later we know her as Miriam, she's on the scene as well. She's keeping watch. And this brings us to a scene that's just pregnant with tension. So think about this. There's an Israelite boy who's been placed in a basket in the river, and who approaches the very spot where the boy is? Pharaoh's own daughter. Look at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. 
when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. All right, all right again, sense the tension in the story here. Pharaoh, Pharaoh has ordered that every Israelite baby boy to be thrown into the Nile to die. And here we have Pharaoh's own daughter. And this baby boy, an Israelite baby boy, is brought out of the Nile. What would she do? She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Notice the, the courage of his sister, even to suggest keeping this boy alive to defy the king. Look at verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. <laughs> she was supposed to throw him into the water. and She drew him out. Don't you love the providence of God? Who is it that raises up the one who, do, who would deliver God's people out from under Pharaoh? It's Pharaoh's own family. Right under his very nose, at the hands of his very daughter, the soon-to-be the soon deliverer of the very people Pharaoh is oppressing is being, is being kept alive, being kept safe and sound, even being nursed in God's kindness by his own mother. The palace from which this genocidal edict went out, it's the very house in which the boy Moses finds salvation from that edict. The house of destruction becomes the house of salvation for Moses. Pharaoh, Pharaoh becomes the very grandfather of the one who would deliver people out from under his bondage. We do well when we pause and we consider the gracious providence of God in the Bible and in our lives. Think about the common Israelite in this story at this point. Everything felt, everything appeared to be helplessly out of control, right? And yet, right in the middle of all the pain, God is at work to bring about deliverance for his people. I think this has great implications for those of us who serve the same God today. Because, church, it means, it means that the circumstantial suffering of God's people is no indication of his absence. The circumstantial suffering of God's people is no indication of God's absence. God is always working to bring about his covenant promises to his people. That's what he's doing. So maybe you find yourself in some kind of season in which the suffering is just so intense. Maybe you're in a season where you simply cannot see the hand of God at work. You have, you have no sense. You are picking up no indications of how he could possibly be working in and through whatever it is you're going through. And I would just encourage you, you have to know your suffering is no indication of God's absence. In fact, it may just be the indication of his presence. 
Remember, one thing we know undoubtedly about Israel's suffering is that it was God himself who ordained it. Which means that it was not pointless. God, in his wise providence, brought Israel into the same suffering into the same suffering as the the nations surrounding them. Why did he do that? Why would he bring his people into suffering, into exile? Well, at least on some level, it's to prove to us that he's a God who loves to draw near to those who are scattered and far away from God and to bring them home to himself. That's the exodus. Without, Without exile, we don't have exodus. And here we are finding ourselves in exile, away from God. And what's our hope? The hope is that God will come to us. And lead us from exile into exodus back to himself. That's why we have the story. It's hard to ruin the, ruin the punch, but that's what's happening. Listen, the lived experience of God's people in a fallen world has always been the same. This is the lived experience of God's people. Legitimate pain met with legitimate hope. That's what separates God's people from the nations. The nations have legitimate pain. But God speaks legitimate hope into the hearts, into the pain of the people who belong to him. Listen, the suffering of God's people, your suffering is never outside the providential care and purposes of God. Listen, when you have no outward sign of God's favor, you must cling to what you do have, his providence and his promises. That's what he gives you. He gives you the reality that he's in control and he gives you the reality that he's working things to save you. That's what he's doing. I think this brings us to the next section of chapter two. Because there we have this deliverer being raised up. Look there in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. You may think, well, I wonder what Moses' life was like in the palace And the author says, too bad. One day he grew up. (laughs) This is how narrative time works. And we got to be careful here. Don't want to work too hard to get behind the text. Just receive it. He's going to tell you what you need to know. Moses is an adult now. He spent decades in Pharaoh's house. One day he decides to leave the confines of the royal palace and go out into the realm of what the author twice says are his people. So he goes out, the author says, he looks on their burdens. And as soon as he steps down into the world of his people, Moses is pictured three times over as what? A deliverer. Moses is a deliverer, a a defender of those who are oppressed. You see that there in the rest of verse 11. It says he went out and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And how does he respond? He looks this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Moses kills the Egyptian. He buries him in the sand. We have no, again, no authorial comment on this. All we know is that Moses stands up for an oppressed Israelite and he delivers them. The next day he goes out again. This time he sees two of his own people fighting with one another. Verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Notice, Moses again is pictured as one standing up for the oppressed. So the the author does say here that there was one of the men in the wrong. You notice that in verse 13? He said to the man in the wrong. Verse 14, the man answered, 
who made you a prince and judge over us? Won't spend time on it. That's a bit ironic foreshadowing, isn't it? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. So at a certain point, Moses' role as a deliverer begins to cost him. Pharaoh hears and is not pleased. Moses is forced to flee. Look at verse 15. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. All right, so Moses has now officially, he's finally left his place of privilege. You remember later on in the book of Hebrews, he's commended for this actually, isn't he? He's now in exile himself, and once again, he finds himself in a situation in which he's confronted with injustice. Look at verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses, get this, he stood up and saved them and watered their flock. All right, for a third time, Now, Moses is pictured as a deliverer of the oppressed. This time he saves seven daughters from the domination of some shepherds. All right, what is the effect of all this as far as we're concerned? The effect is that the narrative spotlight is now squarely on the man Moses. That's what we need to know. So thus far in the story, it's shown us that God's people need to be delivered. That's their reality. It's shown us that God has promised to bring about a deliverer. That's what he's doing. And now he's putting forth Moses as the guy, as the chosen deliverer. He's not yet called. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But he has already been chosen, hasn't he? Even the way Moses meets the women and marries one of them, it actually highlights his significance. So as you're reading through the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, when a central figure leaves home and goes to a well and sits there and meets a woman and gets invited to dinner, well, that's a patriarch. That's what you're looking for right there. That's the... That's the recipe. This is true with Isaac. It's true with Jacob. It's true with Judah. And now it's here with Moses. The point being, it's just another highlighter. Moses is the guy. This is who you need to pay attention to. And Moses has a good bit of life behind him. It's likely that he has no idea that his biggest act of deliverance is still in front of him, huh? Because meanwhile, back in Egypt... The situation for God's people has not changed. There's still an unspeakable suffering. The final verses of chapter 2 kind of zoom out once again. Here we see the people and their God. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. All right, so we have another transition here. So another Pharaoh has died. Notice how quickly these kings come and go in the Bible and in history. I'm trying to track one that lasts and they don't. So that king is gone and yet the oppression of God's people remains. And for the first time, we do see the collective response of God's people in their suffering. What do they do? What do do God's people do in their suffering? They pray. Verse 23. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And just listen to what happens. Their cry for rescue from slavery 
came up to God. There's so much we, we don't know about this situation. So we don't know how much they prayed. We don't know when they prayed or how loudly, how often. What we do know is that when they prayed, even though they couldn't see it, their prayers were being heard by God. You notice that? And just look at the way that their prayer is registered with the Lord himself. Verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. You ever seen a, you ever seen a hot air balloon uninflated? It just kind of lays there on the ground in a heap until someone pulls that lever and shoots hot air right into its belly and it begins to rise, right? The final verses of Exodus 2, it's like there are bursts of hot air being propelled into the hope of Israel, which just seems to lie flat on the ground. But in these last couple of verses, you see it growing again. God heard and God remembered and God saw and God knew. Here, thankfully, we have the plain spoken truth of the reality that we've been sensing all along. And that is that there is nothing here that's happening outside of the loving care of God. God hears their prayers. God sees their suffering. He knows what they're experiencing. And most importantly, verse 24 says, God remembered his covenant. Nothing, nothing here is happening on a whim. He references the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. If you go back to Genesis 15, we have that very covenant. Genesis 15, verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring, that is the people of Israel, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The point of Genesis 15 is that God had committed himself, had covenanted himself to Abraham and the people who would come out of the family of Abraham. The Lord committed himself that through Abraham, he would bless all the peoples of the earth and that along the way, his people would spend 400 years in great affliction, which is exactly where they are here in Exodus chapter one. But they should never lose hope because he has promised by his very self that he will bring them out. This is God's covenant commitment. And here, at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, what does God do? He remembers that covenant. Now, he remembers, when, when God remembers in Scripture, it's not that it, it fell out of his mind and he's all of a sudden his memory is jogged. Remembers means that he begins to act. Think of the story of Noah and the flood. After a certain time, God remembered Noah. You remember that? meaning he began to act on his behalf. And the same thing that's happening here in Exodus chapter 2. God remembered his covenant. Why is the deliverance of God's people such a certainty? 
Is it because God's people are going to prove to be really, really, really faithful in Egypt? No. The deliverance of God's people is such a certainty, not because of their great faithfulness, but because of God's. We don't sing, great is my faithfulness, for a reason. Here's the great truth that we come away with here at the end of chapter 2. It's that even if, or even when, God's people forget God's covenant, he doesn't. He remembers. So this is a book about God's people, for sure. It's a book about Moses in some sense, but more than anything, what we're going to see in Exodus is that this is a book about God. And that's why here at the close of chapter 2, when God's people cry out for rescue, God himself takes center stage. And that's going to be the case from here on out. Their well-being is now completely tied to, rests entirely on, not any person, not themselves, not even Moses himself, but on the faithfulness of God. Listen, the great liberating reality is that both this story and yours They're not ultimately about your faithfulness, but about God's. Your life, your story is not ultimately about your strength, but his. It's not about your glory, but his. And what this means, Christian, to bring it all the way home, is that your salvation does not rest on your ability to remember and cling to God's promises, but on his. God does not forsake his covenant. He remembers. And as the church, the good news of the gospel is that we, as God's people now, well, we have a new covenant, don't we? Remember, we studied this a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians. Jesus himself, on the night when he was betrayed to the cross, he took his disciples aside and he led them in a meal of bread and wine. And that wine represented his blood, which was A new covenant. Jesus covenanted himself, committed himself to his church. And then he broke the bread and drank the wine and proceeded straight to the passion of the cross where he sealed that new covenant with the letting of his own blood. And it's by that payment of blood that guilty sinners can now be forgiven. Now we are washed of our sins. So do you, see, do you see why you can, like the Israelites, do you see why you can groan in your suffering? Do you see why you can cry out to God for, for rescue from slavery to sin and from the suffering of your life? Do you see why you can be confident that Jesus will hear you and see you and know you? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian And I would just encourage you, do you see why, if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, do you see why you can do so now? Why you can call out to God to save you from the penalty of your sins? Because God has made a blood covenant with us. That anyone who turns from their own self-sufficiency, from their own sin, which has driven them in exile away from the Lord and returns to him through faith in Christ, Anyone who professes that the blood of the covenant is blood that covers their sins, blood of the covenant is the blood that was shed for the penalty of their sins, well, he'll save them. He'll save you. Jesus will not forget his covenant. If you come to him for salvation, you will be saved. 
We, the church, we are a promise people. We, we live under divine promise. We are guarded by divine promise, uh, providence. And we just, we're here. We, we just read it in 2 Peter 3, didn't we? We are just awaiting divine intervention from God himself. And it's coming. So what do we do? What do we, what do, we do when our obedience leads us? Not immediately to safety, but to suffering. What do we do when our faith in Jesus makes life harder and not easier? Well, we take up faith and we cry out. We groan and we wait. Church, we don't forget God's covenant in Christ because he hasn't and he won't. And one great way to guard against forgetting this covenant sits right here in front of us. It's the Lord's Supper, where we experience once again the reality that Jesus himself was broken, his blood was shed, and we just enter into the benefits of that. So let's pray, and we'll remember this together. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for this great reality of the new covenant. We praise you for the reality that you are a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God and that the covenant that was made and sealed with the very blood of Christ stands open for us even now. Father, I pray for those who may be here even now who have not trusted in Christ. Father, we pray that they would see that they don't have to carry the guilt and shame of their own sin, but they can give that to Christ. And they can be welcomed home by a God who remembers his covenant with those who are humble and contrite in heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.